got to get my technology set up here. It's one problem when you use the technology for your book, for your notes and stuff. It uh, sometimes takes a second. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is risen. And that's not just a truth that we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. It's a truth that is with us all the time because it's always true. Uh, We pray, Father, now that your Holy Spirit might penetrate our hearts, might compel us to hear your word and to respond in a manner that glorifies the risen one, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved, I ask you to join me. Take your Bible. Turn to Luke 18. Luke chapter 18. It has been a while. It's been since July, actually that uh, we were in this book together, but today we're going to pick it back up and uh, keep going line by line, verse by verse. And God willing, we'll get through the end of chapter 18 today. Um, Since it has been a while, it'll do us some good just to take a couple minutes to recall what's going on, to, to see what Jesus is doing, see what Jesus is saying, see what is being said about Him. Uh, Just to kind of quickly walk through the chapter, we first saw in Luke 18 the parable on prayer. You had the unrighteous judge and the persistent widow. And we we saw that as Luke uh, 18, 1 through 8. And what came out of that is that God is the righteous judge who is going to bring justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night, as it says in verse 7. In verses 9 through uh, 14, we saw the the other parable, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And that is one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible, if you ask me. And uh, since I'm the one talking, I'll say it is. And uh, the, the Pharisee is, he's the one who's standing up to pray. He's praying out loud and he is thanking God that he's not like other people. He's thanking God that he's not like other people who, who aren't like him. Not like this tax collector over here who's obviously a sinner, and meanwhile the tax collector is wanting to hide his face in shame, and he's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And one of them went home justified. It was not the Pharisee. Uh, We then move to Jesus blessing the children who came to him. His disciples thought that it was beneath him to be doing this, but Jesus puts them in their place, and we're reminded in that Scenario that, that passage that we must come to Jesus like children. You know, my children are getting older now, but they are still to a large part utterly dependent upon daddy and mommy. And that is the way you were when you were a child. And that is the way we must come to Jesus, utterly dependent upon Him. Now, on the other hand, you had this rich young ruler. And he thought that he was good enough. He was mature enough. He was keeping the commandments enough. He was righteous enough. But something was missing from his life. And Jesus basically told him, stop loving the world. Stop loving money. Stop loving your stuff. And he goes away sad. He refuses because he does not want to stop worshiping these things he has made into idols. And that is the challenge for all of us to examine whether or not we are ready to put everything aside to follow Jesus. It is impossible with people, but it's possible with God. You know, we don't have it in ourselves to do this, but God saves us by His grace. 
It's impossible for me to ever be good enough. It's impossible for me to ever accrue enough credit, enough merit, enough goodness to ever please God, to ever match that perfect righteousness of Jesus. But He gives it to us by faith. We are not promised easy lives in Christ. The disciples weren't either. That's why in verse 30, Jesus promises eternal reward to those in His kingdom. And then last time that we were in this passage together in Luke 18, we saw Jesus tell His disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be killed. But I will rise on the third day. And that's the journey that Jesus is on as we get to this section. But I do want you to see verse 34, which when I was going back over my notes, I I think I kind of skipped over this verse at the end of our last time together uh, with me preaching. And verse 34 says, But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So even after everything they had seen, everything they had heard, there's three descriptors here. They understood none of it. The statement was hidden. They did not comprehend. They did not get it. They did not get it. The idea of a Messiah who would suffer and be killed just did not compute. And it would would be that way for the Jews to this day, really. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that... It's a stumbling block. A Messiah, a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So they didn't understand it. The meaning was hidden. They did not comprehend. And that brings us to today's passage. So let's look at it together. Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. And this is what the Word of God says. As Jesus was approaching Jericho... A blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. I pray God's blessing upon His Word this morning. Yeah, before we, we dig in to the passage itself, we do need to consider just for a second what came before it. Jesus is journeying from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, which is under, the, under Roman rule by this time. And He has the twelve, and He's taking the twelve aside, and we saw this in the last passage. I'm about to fulfill the scriptures about me. I'm about to fulfill what the prophets have said. I'm about to die. And then I'll rise again. But, but, so, we, so we have that. And we contrast that with this passage where we have a miracle. So in one passage, 
from the world's perspective at least, and, and perhaps even that of the disciples who don't understand, we have Jesus looking weak. But in this passage, He is strong. He is powerful. He has authority over the natural order. In one passage, He is a preview of the Jesus we see in Isaiah 53, written 750 years before Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But here... In this last passage, we're getting a glimpse of what the kingdom will be like after Revelation 19. When Jesus returns and sin and the effects of sin are crushed by the glory of God, by the righteousness of Christ. And that right away should be an encouragement to us this morning, beloved, because if you feel weighed down by sin, if you feel weighed down by guilt, if you feel weighed down by different types of afflictions that you have in your life, if you have faith in Jesus, there is coming a day sooner or later when all of that and all of the effects of that will be done away with completely. It is said that in Christ we are saved at a point in time from the penalty of sin. And if you are a Christian today, you are right now being saved from the power of sin through the the ministry of the Holy Spirit in you. But there is coming a day when we will be saved even from the presence of sin. And that's the glorious day we just sung about, by the way. So the question becomes, how do we get from one point to the other? Well, that's really what the healing of the blind man is all about. So let's look at it. Look again in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging Now let's stop there, because we are reading Luke. Luke is the third gospel. We know that there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Matthew and Mark, along with Luke, are sometimes called the synoptic gospels. When you think about grammar, you think about synonyms, words that have the same meaning. That, that, That sin prefix means same. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, because they deal with a lot of the same material. They tell a lot of the same things in different perspectives. Matthew, if you read through the book of Matthew, he writes from a very Jewish perspective. Mark is writing from kind of an, an, it's kind of like an action movie of the Gospels. There's a lot of action and and it's thought, and, and I agree with this thought, that he is taking a lot from Peter, the perspective of Peter when he writes that Gospel. Luke, though, is the researcher. Luke, in, in Luke 1, he sets about to compile, and this is, I'm quoting Luke 1, to compile an account of the things accomplished. He investigated everything carefully, he said. So you have different perspectives telling the same event. Why do I bring this up? Because Matthew and Mark also talk about Jesus healing the blind man here. But to read them without understanding, you might think the Bible's contradicting itself. But it's not. It's not. For instance, Matthew and Mark tell us that what we just read about happened as Jesus was leaving Jericho. Now, if you look at your Bible, you see that as he was approaching Jericho, Luke says. Well, how can that be? It's probably because there were two areas known as Jericho in first century Israel. You had the city of Jericho, first century Israel, the city of Jericho, and it is about 
six miles from the Jordan River, east of, or west of the Jordan River, and about 18 miles from Jerusalem. Okay? Northeast of Jerusalem. And then you also had another city called Jericho, except it was pretty much in ruins. And if you think back in your Old Testament, you remember the story of Joshua and the nation of Israel crossing the Jordan River and marching around the walls of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down and the city was left in ruins during the conquest in the book of Joshua. So you have what's going on here is Jesus is probably heading out of the region known as Old Testament Jericho and heading toward or heading into the city that was commonly called Jericho at that time. So there's not a, not a, a contradiction there if you know the topography and the geography of Israel. There are a couple more things to work out. One, in Matthew 20, there were actually two blind men here. Mark doesn't mention two. Luke doesn't mention two, but there were two blind men here. Mark and Luke only mention one, a beggar, and Mark even gives him a name, Bartimaeus. So there were two men here, but only one is central to what the story. Why does Mark give his name? It might be because he was, as we're going to see, he begins to follow Jesus here. His name might have been known to the people who first read this gospel. He might have been part of the early church. In fact, I think it's probably likely that he was. And that may be why Mark decided to give his name. Whereas Luke has a very Gentile audience in mind and he he may not have thought it necessary to give his name. Either way, Jesus approached Jericho. A blind man was sitting there And he was begging. And so it's here that we see the desperation of the blind. The desperation of the blind. Bartimaeus is the epitome of a desperate man. Being blind in in first century Israel isn't like being blind today. Now that's not to say that being blind today is, is, is rainbows and sunshine. But there was no braille in first century Israel. There were no avenues for job placement for blind people in first century Israel. Bartimaeus and anyone like him would have been utterly dependent upon the goodness of others to survive, period. No ability to take care of themselves on a day-to-day basis. The, The definition of being helpless, the definition of being hopeless, the very fact he's shown to be beside the road begging also shows that he he was probably stigmatized as a social and perhaps even a religious outcast. And since this was a road that people traveled to go from Galilee to Jerusalem, you have people going to Passover that's coming up. He's there, he's begging, he's dependent upon others for his survival. There is nothing he can do to help himself. It would be impossible for him to remedy his situation he, he can't make himself unblind. So what could he do other than beg? Well, a crowd is going by. And though he's blind, he's not deaf. And there's something about this crowd that's different. There's something about the murmur. There's something about the noise level. There's something about this that tells Bartimaeus... This is not an ordinary crowd. This is not an ordinary group of travelers. So he inquires and is told, it's Jesus 
of Nazareth. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Who had become well known in Israel. We are getting toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He had become well known in Galilee and in Judea, north and south. For three plus years He has been preaching. For three plus years He has been healing. He has been casting out demons. He has been performing miracles. He was well known in Israel. They knew His name. Even more so because they could associate it with that town Nazareth. Because nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? John 1. Except Jesus had come out of Nazareth. And Bartimaeus knew of Him. But it's not just that Bartimaeus knew of Him. A lot of people know of Jesus. But what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Well, it's clear from how Bartimaeus responds that he, based on what he's heard, based on maybe his own understanding of hearing the prophets read to him, the Old Testament books, he believed something about Jesus. Beloved, today you must know that you will not be judged based on whether or not you know of Jesus. You will be judged based on whether or not you believe in Jesus, what you believed about Jesus. Bartimaeus believed in Jesus. And because of what he believed, he had confidence Jesus had the power to take his blindness away. Now think about that. Now sometimes when we get into the Gospels and we're reading about all the miracles we can almost even become numb to it. Oh, Jesus healed a blind man. Jesus healed a deaf man. Jesus raised the dead. Let's not forget this is not just story time. This is real. This happened. You put yourself in Bartimaeus' position and think about the faith it takes to think that this man can take my blindness away. That takes faith. A lot of faith. And so verse 38, he called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. That's a simple sentence, right? But there is so much in that sentence. And he hasn't even talked about his blindness yet. But first, he called out. He called out. Better, he cried out. That's what the verb in Greek means. To cry out. Matthew actually uses a verb that says he's to, to scream. The point is, Bartimaeus had to get Jesus' attention. At all costs, he had to get Jesus' attention in this, his moment, while he passed by. This might have been his only chance for deliverance. So he could not delay. So he screamed, he cried out, Jesus Son of David. Notice he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He's told Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He says Jesus, Son of David. So what's the significance of that? What's the significance of this man calling Jesus Son of David? He's not just saying that you're a descendant of David. You're in David's family. Although, of course, Jesus was. You know, both the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 that goes through Joseph ties him to David. And the genealogy in Luke 3 that goes through the family of Mary ties him to David. So he is by blood and legal right a a descendant of David. But not just any descendant of David. Not just any son of David. 
He was God's chosen son of David. He was the son of David. He was the one who was going to reign on David's throne for a thousand years and forever and ever. He was the one to fulfill the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus was God's anointed one to reign over His everlasting kingdom. He was the Messiah. That's what this means. Son of David was a a messianic term in Israel. It had been since at least half a century before Jesus was born. Maybe even earlier than that. Any Jew, including the blind man, using that term would have been knowing this is a reference to the one we are waiting for. This is a reference to the Messiah who is going to bring restoration and healing. In fact, Jews using that title might have been thinking about Isaiah 35, a messianic prophecy in which it says, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Bartimaeus believes Jesus is the fulfillment of this. In fact, he may have had that very verse in mind. So he had to cry out. He had to scream. He had to get Jesus' attention. But let's not turn our back on the last part of that. Have mercy on me. What's that telling us? Bartimaeus has already said what he thinks about Jesus, Jesus, son of David. Have mercy on me. What's that telling us? He's talking about himself now. Bartimaeus knows he is not worthy of sight. He's not worthy of sight. You know, we live in a, in, in a culture where a lot of people feel entitled to a lot of different things. Bartimaeus didn't even feel entitled to his own eyes working the way they should have. To cry out for mercy. Let's understand what mercy is. Mercy is to confess you aren't worthy. To cry out to God for mercy is to cry out for Him to not give you what you do deserve. We think about grace and mercy, and sometimes we get confused. Really, they're two sides of the same point. Grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when He doesn't give you what you do deserve. We cry out to God for both because He's the one who gives both. So to cry out for mercy for Bartimaeus was to cry out for God to not give him what he did deserve, which was judgment. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was a sinner in need of mercy. That he... You know, people who don't sin don't need mercy. People who don't sin don't don't need to worry about judgment. But Bartimaeus knows, I don't measure up to God's standard of perfection. I need mercy. Today, it is easy for you and I to look at the world around us and see all that's going on, see the way our culture is heading, and think, thank God I'm not like them. In those moments, beloved, we're no better than the Pharisee in the temple saying that about the tax collector. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and I am part of that all. And you are part of that all. None of us meets God's righteous standard. 
Bartimaeus included. And so he says, have mercy on me. Now in asking Jesus to do this, he's also acknowledging that Jesus has the power to grant it. Now the Jews, they believed that only God could give mercy. This kind of mercy. So Bartimaeus is saying, you're the son of David, you are the Messiah, you have the power to grant mercy, you are the anointed one of God, do not give me what I deserved. Basically, he's saying, I believe you have the rights of God in you, Jesus. So he cries out to him. Not everyone has sympathy. Not everyone has sympathy on him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that some were sternly telling them to be quiet. That's enough usually. Someone tells me to be quiet. That's enough usually to shut me up if I've got superficial faith. If I've got a faith that doesn't want to offend anybody. That's enough. Oh, I don't want to offend. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll go over here and keep to myself. Bartimaeus, no. Look at what it says again. But he kept crying out all the more. He would not be stopped. Son of David, have mercy on me. He repeats the title. He repeats the request. This is the desperation of the blind. Beloved, have you ever come to a point in your life where you have been this desperate? Do you realize this morning that you should be this desperate? for the righteousness of Christ. We see the desperation of the blind, but we also see the deliverance of the Savior. I don't always alliterate, but today I am. The deliverance of the Savior. Look again at verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded that He be brought to Him. And when He came near, He questioned Him. Now, let's let's stop there. The Son of God, through whom all things have made that have been made, stops at the scream of a blind beggar. Stops at the helpless, dependent, yet believing cry of His name, Jesus, and His messianic title, Son of David. You have the anointed one of God stopping for this discarded one. Mark adds here, in in Mark 10, that some people called the blind, saying to Him, Take courage. Stand up. He is calling you. Then throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And that tells us something more about Bartimaeus. First, the cloak may have been the only thing this guy owned. Again, he's begging for everything. The cloak may have been the only thing he owned. Utterly dependent upon others, unable to help himself. Even so, contrast that with the rich young ruler earlier in the chapter who has more than enough but won't turn his back on his own possessions. He won't sell everything and give it to the poor to follow Jesus. The blind man cast aside his possession and heeds Jesus' command immediately to come to him. And when he comes near, Jesus questions him. Now, Jesus doesn't need to question him. John 2.25 tells us that Jesus already knew what was in man. So he, he knows what's going on with Bartimaeus before Bartimaeus is born much less right then. But he questions him to get his to get him to 
to make his request, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, to regain my sight. Lord. Lord. Now, it, it, it wasn't strange in those cultures, in ancient cultures, to call someone in authority over you, Lord. You know, Sarah, 1 Peter tells us, 1 Peter 3, that Sarah called her own husband, Abraham, Lord. With a lowercase l, by the way. But that's not what this is. That's not what this is. We have every reason given Bartimaeus already saying, Jesus, son of David, to know he was showing confidence in Jesus being one able to give him mercy, able to restore sight. In short, Bartimaeus is likely affirming the deity of Jesus here, the fact that he is God. And of course, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The fact he wanted to regain his sight indicates he probably was not born blind, but he knew what it was like to see, and now he knew what it was like to not see, and he wanted to regain what had been lost. So verse 42, Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Now Matthew adds that Jesus touched his and the blind man's eyes. He touched his eyes. Not a big show though. Now, you turn on some religious channels and you'll see the, these people who, who they, they purport to be miracle workers and there's a show going on. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus heals with a word. Sometimes with a touch. Sometimes he, he uses spit. Sometimes He uses clay. Sometimes people just touch His cloak. Remember that one? The method isn't the point. Jesus doesn't need a method. The point is that He does it. By His will. By His grace. By His mercy. By His power. Bartimaeus was healed. We'll see for sure in a second when we get to verse 43. But before we do that, I want to point out something. And this is something you have to read ahead to know. But this is the last miracle that Luke gives us. It's the last miracle recorded in Luke. Why is that significant? Because in chapter 19, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. Everything's going to come to a head. Jesus' mission will be accomplished. But still, why is it significant that the healing of a blind man is the last miracle that Luke tells us about, aside from the resurrection itself, obviously? Turn to Luke 4. Just turn, turn a few pages back to Luke 4. In Luke 4, that's where Jesus' earthly ministry really gets going. In the previous chapter, he's baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit leads him out into the wilderness where for 40 days he's tempted by the devil. Then he goes into Galilee, to Nazareth in particular. And that's important because that was his hometown. Now, he was born in Bethlehem, but, but he, he was raised, he lived in Nazareth for most of his life. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship. And he stands up to read. It was customary for 
you didn't have to be a pastor, or they didn't have pastors in the synagogue. The men of the they would take turns reading from the scrolls, reading from the scriptures, and Jesus stands up to read, and somebody hands him Isaiah. Jesus opens it up. He finds the place where it's written. Look at verse 18, Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's Isaiah 61 verse 1. God anointed Jesus as His Messiah. Jesus is the one who gave sight to the blind. What Jesus is doing here, what Luke is telling us, is that this was the favorable year of the Lord. This was the time in which God was sending His Messiah to deliver His people. So Jesus' earthly ministry begins with this proclamation, and the last miracle Jesus does in Luke is like an exclamation point showing us He is, I am, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus healed instantly. He healed totally. He healed all kinds of people. He didn't just heal the people that could pay Him. He didn't just heal the people who looked good on camera. He didn't just heal the people who made a flashy show of things. He healed even blind beggars. He left no one behind, unlike many today. Jesus healed He healed people of real diseases. People didn't come up on stage and say, I, I, I've had back pain. My knee hurts. I've got, I have headaches. No, He healed people of real diseases, tangible afflictions. The paralyzed walked. The deaf heard. The blind saw. And by the way, something he did then that he still does now. The dead lived. The dead lived. The widow's son, Lazarus. Jesus raised the dead to life. He does that today to dead sinners. The Bible tells us, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But if you're a Christian today, it's because God made you alive together with Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. He makes dead sinners alive. Jesus says here, your faith has made you well. And that phrase, made you well, if you've got a different translation than what I've got, it might say healed. But it's not even the word for healed in the Greek. It's the Greek verb sozo, which means to save. In fact, the King James has it as saved. Your faith has saved you. Bartimaeus didn't need to be to have faith to have his eyes healed. But Bartimaeus needed faith to be saved. Jesus heals his heart first. Bartimaeus believed in the son of David. And then Jesus healed his eyes. Or, as I read it put by another pastor teacher this week, the truth concerning Jesus had come home to his heart and he had embraced it. He believed Jesus to be the Messiah and the only one who could heal him physically and spiritually. His heart had seen the light before his eyes did. 
Has your heart seen the light today? Because we see the desperation of the blind. We see the deliverance of the Savior. Finally, in verse 43, we see the devotion of the saved. The devotion of the saved, those who are truly saved. Verse 43, look at it again. Let me turn there. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So so that Jesus was speaking of salvation and not just healing blindness when He says, your faith has made you well. That's shown by what this verse says. Immediately He regained His sight. Immediately He was following Jesus. He was glorifying God. And and not a one-time thing either. This is something that's not really communicated well by the the, the English verb tenses in our Bibles. But in the Greek, the verb tenses are very specific And they show that this was something that kept happening. Bartimaeus did this and kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it, presumably for the rest of his life. Kept following him, kept glorifying him. Now, isn't this what it means to be saved? Isn't this what salvation is supposed to look like? Not merely a one-time thing, but but to be given spiritual life. To be given a new heart. And with that new heart comes new desires. Desires that were different from your formal way of life. Ambitions and motivations that were different than the ambitions and motivations you had before salvation, before you knew Christ. And those desires and motivations are to, to love God, to seek to please God, To seek to to bring Him glory. That's what it means to have a new heart. That's what it means to be saved. So many are professing Jesus today. But their desires and motivations are no no different than anyone else their age. They're no different than anyone else in their income bracket, in their station of life, with their, their kind of history. And they claim to be saved People claim to love God, but they are no different than the rich young ruler who when called upon by Christ to give up what he truly loved, he went away sad and he rejected Jesus. But not this blind beggar. This desperate beggar. He began and continued to follow Jesus and glorify Him. And if you are saved alongside me this morning, this is what should mark your life as well. I wish it marked my life more than it does. That should be the prayer of us all, by the way. But Jesus came to give sight to the blind. Beloved, has the Holy Spirit given you eyes to see that you are the blind beggar? I don't mean to say that this is an allegorical thing where we insert ourselves in the text. This is a real event that happened. But put yourself in his situation. Are you the blind beggar? Have you realized that you need to entrust yourself to the Son of David, to Jesus? That you need to come to Him? Has Jesus given you sight so that you follow Him and you seek to glorify Him with all that you are, with all that you have, with all that you desire, with all that you endeavor to be and do. Do people see you and like 
with Bartimaeus. They see you and do, do they give praise to God? Do they see Jesus at all in you? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves, beloved. Have you come in desperation, ready to abandon everything for Jesus the Messiah to save you? Do you give evidence of that salvation? Do you obey His commands? Do you glorify Him? The blind beggar would not be stopped. The blind beggar did not delay. No, he didn't delay. Neither should you. As I pray, you pray. And if you need to confess sins this morning, confess sins. If you need to cry out to Jesus, save me. Cry out to Jesus, save me. I will talk to you. Do not delay. Do not let your familiarity with church even keep you from recognizing whether or not you truly need to see that you need to be saved. This morning, the Scriptures tell us, receive your sight, follow Jesus, and glorify Him. Let's pray. Father, use Your Word to accomplish Your purpose in each and every one of us. I pray that those who are blind might be given eyes to see. Even even maybe here this morning, Father, if there's somebody who has not come to You by faith through Your Son, Jesus, I pray even this morning they would cry out to You for salvation and come to You. I pray that any and all of us who are not following You might repent. Maybe, maybe Father, we are not living in such a way. Maybe, maybe we know You and we're not living in such a way that people see You in us, that people see Jesus in us. Father, we, we need to repent of that. I pray we would repent of that today and humbly follow You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this this account of a blind beggar who saw and followed and glorified You. May we do the same. We, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.